Hello everybody, my name is Chet Zar. Welcome to another episode of the Dark Art Society podcast. Today is episode number 198, and today I will be interviewing Simon Boswell. Really great interview. I really enjoyed it. Simon's a composer that has worked on, done the uh, the music for over 150 films. He's worked from everybody. Uh, he's worked with people. F- <sighs> I'm tongue-tied this morning. I need more coffee. He's worked with artists like Elton John, um, 23 Skidoo. You ever know? You know 23 Skidoo? I know 23 Skidoo. Uh, Richard Stanley, Clive Barker, uh, Danny Boyle. He did the music for Lord of Illusions, Hardware, Dust Devil, Shallow Grave. I mean, this dude's done a lot. And uh, also worked with all kinds of, um, uh, I mean, I should have his his, uh, Wikipedia page up. Oh, I do. It's over here. Let me see. I'm just going to read a couple quickly. Um, Let's see. Dario Argeno, Alejandro Jodorowsky, Jodorowsky. <laughs> I had trouble pronouncing it uh, during the interview too. He did the um, music for Santa Sangre. He's worked with members of the Sex Pistols, Echo and the Bunnymen, Blur, Orbital. It's just an amazing career. So anyway, it was uh, really cool to 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 talk to him super easy guy to um chat with and had a ton of interesting things to say so uh, i really enjoyed this i think you're gonna dig it um he is he's released a vinyl double vinyl um uh, album of the music from santa sangre with all kinds of bonus materials which is uh you know uh jodorowsky's a great filmmaker and uh, Santa Sangre is a really really amazing movie so thanks Andrew Hawkins for setting this up it was really excellent interview so anyway let me uh, get on with the the art life update and the new subscribers and all that business Um, let's see what's going on with me Uh, you know the only thing really going on with me is that I'm I'm Doing the usual, I'm working. The book, the dystopia book, looks so good. We just got the latest update a few days ago, and it looks so good. It's really like coming together. Finally, it's at it's at a point where I'm I'm like, okay, we're, we need to contact the printer and figure all that stuff out because it's getting to that point. Right now, Mike <clears throat> Carell and I are um, going in and and uh, just kind of giving final edits on the on the on the copy and uh going through and making notes on the layouts to send back to Mackie Osborne is doing the the layout so it's just getting to the point where it's where it's it's all laid out and it needs to just be kind of shaped a little bit and cleaned up so I'm really excited about that the other thing that's been going on with me is I finally I finally did what I've needed to do for my entire life I finally made the decision. I had this epiphany 
while I was meditating the other day and my head was really clear. And um, I was realizing that I have this sense all the time. I have this sense of generalized anxiety and it's really bad and it's really hard to function um, that way for no reason. And uh, I attach things to that anxiety. So it's like I'm, I'm not actually anxious about the things I attach my anxiety to, really. It's the anxiety is already there. And that's probably, you know, from past uh, um, trauma. And I'm sure I might have PTSD if you, if you diagnosed me nowadays. But um, what, what it made me realize that um, I have this anxiety because I, I don't live my life on any sort of schedule, really. And I and and I have so much going on now at this point that the only way I'm, I can uh, get everything done is to put myself on a schedule and be disciplined about it. So I started doing that. It's only been two days now, <laughs> but but you know I'm early. You know, go to bed at a certain time, get up early, do my meditation, do this that. It's like I just schedule out my whole day basically, and it feels a lot better. I feel so much less anxious. I just realized that I have too much going on. The only way I'm going to get myself out of this mess is to schedule things out. You know, maybe when everything's done, I can chill on the schedule. But for now, I need to be kind of disciplined and regimented about it. So that's new for me and kind of exciting. If I can keep it up, that's the only, uh, that's the only trick. But, um, I changed the way I eat it, uh, eat it, the way I uh, used to, uh, the way I eat in January, actually the day before the new year, I changed my eating habits, and cut way down on everything and cut out a bunch of bad stuff and started losing weight. And that was the hardest thing I ever had to do really. So if I can do that, I can, I can live on a schedule. Anyway, that's what's going on with me. Um, Let's get to the new patrons. Now, if you want to support the podcast, you can do it for as little as a dollar a month at patreon.com slash darkartsociety. And um, my dog's barking. Okay, let's see. We left off at Joe Vox. Okay, new subscriber, Eric10, thank you. Moonjug, thank you for supporting Jonathan Hackler, appreciate it, Jonathan, and Gavin Eveland. You folks make the podcast happen, so it's greatly appreciated. Your support makes it happen. Wouldn't be happening without you. No way. So uh, give yourselves a collective pat on the back, and I thank you. Um, oh, and I forgot to do the synesthesia word of the week. For those who aren't aware, I have synesthesia where, where uh, names have flavors to me. So I'm going to do in, in honor of Simon being on the podcast. Simon is a very strong synesthesia flavored word for me. So um, I'm going to do Simon today for the for the synesthesia word of the week. And Simon tastes like pretzels. This is very strong, very strong. I've got certain names that are like, you know, um, have 
kind of have have flavors attached to them and then other ones that are just like you know instant super strong connection and simon is one of those um so simon tastes like pretzels all right that's it let's get on with this excellent interview here we go simon boswell thanks for listening hope you enjoy it Hey, Simon. Hello. Hello. Pleased oh. to meet you. <laughs> How are you? <laughs> I'm, really, I'm really well. I'm well. I'm alive. Uh, you know, <laughs> Thank you. Enduring uh, like everybody yeah, else. Yeah, right. Yeah. Plague. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. I really uh, appreciate it. You've, you've got such a such a an amazing career. It's really uh, been fascinating doing all this research on you. It's like I I. I I uh, I feel a lot of connections with you, be it the uh, uh, working on Lord of Illusions. And uh, did you work with 23 Skidoo? I did. I produced them at a certain right. point. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's like the, the 23 Skidoo was the soundtrack to when I first took acid in 1987. <laughs> I don't know if it was what you produced, but it was like, it was, it's just, I see these like, I don't know, kind of connections. It's pretty cool. Um, yeah. <laughs> I tell you, I mean, I, it, what's weird for me is, I mean, my favorite quote about about all this is John Lennon, who's who said, you know, life is what happens to you when you're busy making other plans. Exactly. <laughs> Which is, you know, so you're really not in control of your life. At least certainly your conscious mind is not in control of it. But so many connections I've realized 30 years later, <laughs> you know, are really strange. Yeah. You know. And if you're talking about taking acid, you know, when I made a track with Timothy Leary oh, in L.A. What? What? Before he died in 1993, I think it was, something like that, yeah. Wow. Wow. How did this come about? That's interesting. I well, that came about because at the behest of my then agent um, in L.A., you know, he, you know, I was getting sort of interest. I I'd previously, we'll probably get into all this. Right. I started writing music for movies in, in Italy in Rome right. with Dario Argento. It was my first uh, first job. But um, having done, you know, sort of 15 or 20 movies, <clears throat> all in Italy, I went to America just to see, you know, what would happen. But uh, my, my agent insisted that I would have to go and live in Los Angeles and that, you know, even though people might be interested in me, they were not going to pay for a a plane fare for me to go over. Right. So, so, so that's what it was. So I ended up living uh, in a couple of uh, very strange places. Uh, one of which was I rented a house from the bass player in Queen, which was like a totally bizarre uh, thing. Wow. Quite sort of posh thing up on near Mulholland Drive. And then I, after a few months, he decided he needed to use it, so I got kicked out. But I found this really weird little house in Wonderland Avenue in Los Angeles, uh -huh. which is notorious for all kinds of reasons. Right. For, for kind of weird, you know, serial killers, yeah. thus the doors and, you know, that, that whole sort of um, scene. Anyway, I met an Italian astrophysicist, um, and she... Her, her particular speciality was downloading space sounds from outer space. Wow! And she wanted to be a she wanted to be a pop star, and so I got involved with her, like taking these samples from out uh, deep space, 
and making them into kind of weird, weird ambient soundtracks and things like that. And then one day she came along, she said, I've run into this guy called Timothy Leary and he really wants to put this track together. You know, would you like to do it? And at the time, you know, uh, Timothy Leary was, was he more interested, less in acid done in space. Huh, right. And he felt like space was like the new drug, the new mm-hmm. sort of mind expansion for the modern world. Uh, so that's sort of how that all came about. Wow. Uh, so they, there's my connection. There's the drawing, <laughs> drawing your, your <laughs> thing together there. Anyway, yeah. That's crazy. Sorry. That's interesting. Uh, um, yeah, let's, yeah, let's give people a little background of, of your life, really. I'm curious to hear your, your, your uh, whole story on how you – got interested in music as a kid and and how you how you got into the film industry and the bands you're in you're around during the punk when the punk era just started and you had a band and 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 uh, not not to met not to mention the film stuff and then the uh uh you know you've done art installations i believe uh, you know you've really kind of done so many different things so let's start at the beginning how did you get interested in music i mean were you a child well, child prodigy or anything i was uh <laughs> Here's the thing, you know, I, my parents wanted me to, you know, I started doing piano lessons when I was four. Something oh, wow. Like, you know, and, and I was, I, was, I think prodigy would not be the right word, but I was pretty good at it. I picked mm-hmm. it up really quick okay. um, and got pretty good. And then at a certain point, I think I can tell this story. Um, my grandfather, who played the violin a bit, and he was sort of interested in my development of music, he decided that I should have a, a better piano teacher, a different piano teacher, and he set me up with this um, Israeli concert pianist, a woman who had apparently been taught in a line from Mozart, the teachers who, you know, wow. <laughs> coming right back through the years. Crazy. So I used to go every we to have my piano lessons with this new piano teacher <laughs> and my grandfather would come along at the end of the piano lesson and I'd play, you know, how I was getting on right. and then I'd say goodbye. And it wasn't until my grandfather's funeral that a sort of chance conversation I had with my aunt as to why my piano teacher was there so many years later. She said, but didn't you know? And I said, no, what? She said, she was your grandfather's mistress. Oh wow! I was his alibi. Oh my god! <laughs> so I can truthfully say the only reason I ended up as a composer is because my grandfather was fucking my piano teacher. Oh my god! That's kind of amazing. <laughs> wow. Okay. So there you go. So anyway, so I had piano lessons and you know play do do what be what you do when you learn. You know you you learn how to read music. And you you kind of sit in front, you know, and you just read the notes and you play it. It's a bit bit like being a robot, really, or being right. like a sort of. But you were into, you were into it though. You were into it as a kid, right? Because I mean, a lot, I of, a, a lot of kids don't feedback. like it. They have to do. They don't they have to. They they have to take have piano to scales, lessons and they don't get into it. it. <laughs> but I was, I I got really good very quickly, hmm. and you know because you know being a horrible vain little kid probably you know you get feedback if you sit down you're small and you play something fantastic on the piano and all the adults will go oh, oh right you know. <laughs> so i got feedback from it so it became something oh that's good i can impress people with that sort of thing however when i was 12 and i saw Jimi hendrix on tv 
Mm. That kind of changed the whole perspective of you know what music could be right. for me. And my my brother, who's three or four years older than me, was already picking up, was learning the blues. Um, Robert Johnson sort of mm-hmm. Delta Blues, mm-hmm. uh, Bert Yanch, who's an English singer songwriter, sort of bluesy finger picking, and so he taught me a few things on guitar. So I, I then just taught myself the guitar and seeing Jimi Hendrix and all that was going on around that time. Um, that was a great inspiration to me. So I, I kind of grew up through my teens with classical piano and with completely out there guitar. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, I mean even though I appreciated the lyrical qualities of Jimi Hendrix, which, again, I think is sort of underestimated in his reputation. He wasn't just a wild guy set the fire to his... Oh, yeah. He was definitely a genius, for sure. So that's how really what happened to me with music. So I I had these two two strands going along, and I, I think the guitar became... It took over because if you are highly trained in music, reading notes... It's it's really the opposite of being creative, mm-hmm. unless you're a fucking genius <laughs> who can do everything Mozart did and then transcend it, and go write something unbelievable. Right. Whereas on the guitar, you know, if you're learning it yourself and you know finding your way around it, it's a much more creative tool. You know, right. so I found that to be the thing initially, which uh, set me up for like you know writing songs and do, you know doing doing the guitar thing. Um, I can carry on, but if that's enough. Oh yeah, know. no, no. This is uh, it, this is really interesting. What about? I mean, were you influenced by the Beatles as, at all? As far as like, oh, completely. Yeah, songwriting. I mean, the Beatles. You know, that was all happening when I was sort of ten or eleven. You wow, know, yeah. Uh, so yeah, of course, of course, it was. <laughs> and, you know, it was just it was just like mind blowing. Yeah. To see that happening as a cultural phenomenon, you understand. You know, I was I was born in the 1950s, so he's coming out into this this very sort of straight world, right. really. Yeah. A world yeah. Sort of traumatized by World War Two. Right. And my parents, you know, their generation just ha- ha- glad it's all over, and you better get a good job because you know, well that sort of shit. Yeah. Yeah. Something none of. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I've been. Uh, uh, I've been. I don't know. In the last, I'm a I'm a big fan of the Who, and yeah. um, uh, I've been doing you know Who documentaries, John Entwistle documentaries. Pete Townsend read his book for like the last couple of years. Just you know, you kind of rediscover music that you liked when you were younger, and you go, yeah. you know, you just kind of like, yeah. oh, I forgot how much I love the Who, you know. And I've been doing that for a while. It's like, uh, which led me on to a bunch of Rolling Stone stuff, and it's like they all have the same story about coming out of this era where their parents were just like, don't rock the boat. We finally got some stability. It's like these yeah, people, they exactly. were totally traumatized by exactly. World War Two, And so it's like you yeah. kind of understand yeah. that. Well, I, yeah, I completely, I mean, completely, that's it. I mean, I'm 10 years younger say, than, than them. Right. But that's, so they must have been even closer to, right. you know, being much closer. Well, maybe during the war, actually. Um, but, yeah. That's another thing, actually, I saw because um, there was a <laughs> there was a, a point at which I was staying with my grandmother, with my brother. I think my parents had taken some time off, you know, from us and dumped us with a, a grandmother in a little town called Folkestone, near Folkestone, on the southeast coast. And somehow or other, my brother, who was how old would he have been? 
trying to think, this was in 1963. So I was 10 and he was maybe 14, 13, mm. 14. He managed to persuade my grandmother that we should go and see this band that were playing in the local cinema there called the Rolling Stones. <laughs> so I, that's the first gig I ever saw. Wow, was amazing. With Brian Jones. Amazing. In it. Amazing. You know, wow. It was, but it was terrifying. I mean, <laughs> you know, I, the, the, I, we were sat like in the gallery in the uh, upstairs and all these girls were screaming and stamping on the floor. And I thought, fuck, I am going to die. <laughs> so music sort of inevitably became even more connected with danger. Right. The sense of adrenaline and excitement, which wow. was amazing. You know, I, that's probably one thing that I thought, actually, you know, I'd like to be creating that kind of. Right, right. That's what I was going to say. That that that, <laughs> that, uh, uh, that must have been a huge influence. I mean, did you start did you start playing in bands as like a young teen or anything? Well, I, I mean, kind of, yes, in the sense where there was a we had a band at school, but it was nothing really great. But no, but at that point, I started focusing. Well, I I had an electric guitar, and because my dad was sort of in electronics he mm. made me a hundred watt amp which oh, is wow. <laughs> those days was like insane right um, <laughs> but no i i initially focused more on acoustic guitar and and finger picking stuff you know mm. i i first got signed by a record company for doing that kind of ragtime very fast finger picking and uh, acoustic guitar and oh wow um so that's sort of slightly jumping the gun of it. But yeah, so I, you know, I I had this musical training on the piano, an interesting guitar, electric and acoustic. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, I went to, to college to study English literature. You know, I didn't go and study music anymore, which I'm forever thankful for, <laughs> right. honestly. Um, and I don't want to be mean to people, but, you know, a lot of the people I've met during the course of my career who are, you know, super trained about the history and theory of music can't or don't dare to write it. I know. I've, I've noticed that myself. It's almost like the more proficiency in a way. I mean, not, this isn't always true, but the more you know about music, the less... The, the less these this, those kinds of people are creating these really memorable, unique, creative songs. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. I mean, the simple fact is if you studied and you you know the complexity and how difficult that would be to write what Stravinsky wrote, right. for example, <laughs> you would never, you know, if someone said to me, and this happened actually, the first British film I ever did was a film called Hardware. Oh, right. Yeah. Yep. Okay, uh, and there's a bit in that in which, you know, in discussions with the director, Richard Stanley, uh, I said, well, are we going to do something just crazy like um, Stravinsky? Had I, you know, had I known how complicated that might be, I, but I just had to go at it because I didn't know, I didn't know enough. Right. And I think it's kind of, it's intimidating for people to know too much about that, unless, like I say, you're a real genius and you could assimilate that all and to, you know, make something else your own. You know, right, 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 yeah. Um, yeah, so I got signed up when I was in my first year of college when I was 18 by uh, a kind of blues folk label called Transatlantic Records. How, which how was, did you uh, – how did you get that? Did you like a? Were, well, did you send tapes in, or was it like? How well, did that yes, happen? This is how this is how naive. I'm naive. I mean, I, I literally aspire the John Lennon quotes important to me. I had no fucking idea what to do. <laughs> Someone said to me, 
uh, well, there was someone at college that I met had a reel-to-reel tape recorder, mm-hmm. and he was keen to like you know experiment and do that. So he recorded a lot of the stuff that I did. And um, other people I met said, "Hey, that sounds really good. You should send that to a record company." And I was more like, you know, "What's a record company?" <laughs> <laughs> I was just so green. I was so I, anyway. I, I remember we looked up. Uh, of course, this is pre-computer days where you can go and Google shit. Oh, yeah. We had to go and look up in a London Yellow Pages thing, record companies. And I found this record company, Transatlantic Records. I rang them up and I made an appointment to go and see them. <laughs> I took this tape with me, but I also took my guitar with me. And I can remember to this day sitting in the office of this A&R guy, um, um, which I believe stands for artist and a repertoire. Right. Cool. <laughs> uh, and um, gave him the tape and he put it on his, his tape recorder. Not, not all tape machines were the same in those days. So when he put it through, it played what was on the other side of the tape in reverse. At the same <laughs> so he kind of looked at me like I was fucking lunatic. <laughs> anyway, I'm on guard. with me. And in like classic sort of almost a Hollywood movie style, he said, oh, play for us, play for us. <laughs> so I did. And, and um, they were making a, this double album of the sort of best of a, a British acoustic guitar, hmm. contemporary acoustic guitar. And he said, we really like that. It's great. So I got signed up to do track two tracks on that. That's so cool. And it was very successful. And they... They asked me, then they gave me a whole record deal. So I wow, that's amazing. Carry on, which I was so I was only eighteen when this all happened. Wow, what, what year was this? This would have been about nineteen seventy-one, something like that. Okay, yeah. Wow, that's yeah. incredible. So how did that, how did that is that did that kind of take you to the next step in your career? Well, it, it took me to the point where you know it was. It was strange. I was not in the slightest bit interested in in studying <laughs> when I was there. So I, I, you know, I was getting gigs. I mean, I was getting gigs at folk clubs and stuff around the country whilst I was, you know, at college. I was at Cambridge, and um, I made this album over a period of two years, up to pretty much up to the period when I was about to leave and do my final exams. Um, and that's what happened, really. So this album came out. It's got a fantastic sleeve, fantastic cover. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which, by the way, I don't know if you... Uh, you, you it is around on the internet because it actually is a great cover and it's appeared in various albums of, I mean, you know, books of the sort of great, cool album covers. What's the cover? Um, and it's of me reading uh, like a, one of those... Um, sort of science fiction magazines or, you know, a bit like, you know, like Superman or Batman thing, but a, like a comic. Uh-huh. And it's cool. But it's called The Mind Parasites. Oh, and wow. It, it's by a, a writer called Colin Wilson, who was influenced at that point by Lovecraft. This oh, is excellent. Wow. In the way all this stuff comes around. Yep. <laughs> so the album's called The Mind Parasites, and I, the title track is the same. So this thing came out. Uh, the, there was more money spent on the on the cover than on the recording. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not something I'm like super proud of, but it got me out on tour. You know, supporting at the time, supporting a prog rock band called, called Camel. Oh wow! Who, who were a sort of big UK band in in the seventies. Mm. But I also then was 
supporting all kinds of other upcoming things, which was leading me towards punk things like Dr. Feelgood. Right. Um, I supported, who did I support? I supported Lou Reed. I supported Soft Machine. Damn. I supported, you know. <laughs> so, like, uh, you know, yes, I guess it propelled me upon this course of being a musician. So, to this day, I know this sounds going to sound terrible to a lot of people. I haven't done what one would call an honest day's work. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a, that's yeah. awesome. <laughs> that's amazing. I have only ever done music for my entire life, which I know has made me into probably the world's most dysfunctional person. <laughs> but uh... <laughs> no way. That makes you an artist. That you, you know, you started as an artist. You're living the art life. It's it's. I excellent. guess I've been, you know, I've been very lucky with all of that. You know, it's just that, you know, and I know I'm very lucky to have survived just being a musician. You know. Yeah. Yeah, that's. I uh, mean, this uh, is that's how yeah. I. That's kind of my. I mean, my story is in visual arts. Is that I yeah. started uh, right at a high school, working in the film industry, working in doing makeup effects and creature effects. And then okay. I was able to transition out of that into fine art. And so I kind of haven't had a, a real job my entire life either. So right. Right. I love it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's the best. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love it. I love it in spite of all of the, you know, I mean, there's a constant, always oh, constant. Yeah. There's a price to pay. There's a price to pay for sure, but it's worth the, the price of admission. You know, it's worth it. I th I think it is. I think it is. Yeah. So, yeah. So anyway, any, yeah. I'll, anyway, I'll so, questions. If I'm if I'm just meandering too much. No, no. Um, I love this. This is fascinating. You, you've. It's just. It's kind of amazing. It's like you were born, really, at this ideal period of time to have experienced all these things. Because I'm sure as we get into like uh, the late '70s and the early '80s, you you experienced like the the change in uh, digital music. And, yeah. and all of that stuff and working in the film industry. It's, and it's like, you've got, you know, Lou Reed and then coming and you were a kid during the, during the, the late sixties. It's like, you kind yeah. of live during the best periods of, of the well, world. I, guess really. so. <laughs> I always felt like I was, you know, five, six years too young looking at it retrospectively. Right. Cause you know, when I, when I left school, I was always, by the way, it's just a weird quirk of what happened to me at primary school when I was first went to school that I was put into a year above the year I should have been in. So I was always a year younger than everyone else. That's how I was too. So, <laughs> I was oh yeah. Too, okay. Yeah. I was always like the youngest which is, kid. Which is good. It's good. Cause you know, it sort of stretches you. But right. so I, by the time I left school, I was still only 17. Yep. And uh, I took a year off before going to, to college, to Cambridge University. <laughs> and during that year, my parents moved out of London. They sort of waited till I finished school and they moved out of London. But I stayed in London with various friends. And I started playing folk clubs around London, mm. you know. And, uh, you know, and was doing quite well. And then that somehow, I don't know who, how it came to me, somebody said, the three guys from Deep Purple, oh, wow. <laughs> it's hilarious. Um, they, they're putting together, they, Deep Purple had fallen apart, they're putting together a band. This is like Ashton, Gardner, Dyke and Lord or something. John Lord, I remember right. John, the keyboard player being yeah. in it. 
And um, so I went for this audition with Deep Purple, or what remained of them, which was wow. hilarious. Um, <laughs> which is obviously not, not good enough. So somewhere there's a recording of it, because they recorded all That's of the amazing. auditions. That's amazing. But I kind of always felt that if I, I should have just stayed hanging around London and doing that instead of going to Cambridge for three years. <laughs> But uh, I got to practice the guitar for three years is really what happened. Right. Yeah. That's it. I I, I uh, regret not going to college myself. I just I went straight from high school to, like I said, the film industry. And that's kind of what I was sort of meant to do. Of course, right. th that whole time, just as an aside, um, I started playing guitar and started writing music right around 16 or 17 and so yeah. by the time I got into the film industry, I had a band and I was trying to make it. So I did that for like 10 years where I was trying to do that. And then yeah. the band finally broke up after 10 years. And I was just like, I can't take it. I can't take yeah. it anymore. I have to try something else, which eventually led me to painting, which is what kind of is my, my, uh, my true purpose in life, really, I feel like now. So, but, um, so a lot of the, the, I understand the music stuff more than maybe the average person because I have been a musician yeah. for so long and I was really trying right. to do that whole scene and playing out and all that stuff. Yeah. So, so was I, I mean, <laughs> you know, I, was trying, you know, I, you know I, I tried that. I tried, then I became, you know, I formed a band. I was in a band that came just well, but which was kind of interesting, but it was more kind of uh, acoustic type mm -hmm. thing. Mm -hmm. But Come, we're getting now towards about 1977. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my solo album obviously didn't succeed. <laughs> I'd love to hear it. <laughs> I want to hear oh it. Oh my god! Well, you know, no, <laughs> some of it I'm just it's cringeworthy. Um, I've got one of those albums I, too. <laughs> I was hanging around. So 1976, 1977. So hanging around in London, having left college, and. Um, well, there was this whole sort of pub rock scene, is the best way I could put it, which is what happened in, in, in London just before punk. Right, so right. there were these bands like the 101ers, which was uh, Joe Strummer, hmm. later Clash. Um, you know, various other sort of pub, pub, pub rock bands, the Curzel Flyers, Brinsley Schwartz, all these, you know, they were, they were kind of rocky, mm -hmm. rocky bands, so I can really say. And so I met various people, and punk was just about to happen. And and this is one of those. I saw one of the Sex Pistols' very very earliest gigs at the Marquee Club, which which is like the biggest. It was the big sort of rock club in London for medium sized right. bands. And I saw saw them there supporting a band called Eddie and the Hot Rods. Oh wow! Another, no way! Uh, sort of, um, <laughs> That's amazing know, rock band. Um, because a friend of mine had seen seen the ad for it, and it said plus support Sex Pistols, and he thought that was like, well, that's a really interesting name. We've got to go and see them. So he dragged me along to it, and I saw them. There was about twelve people watching. <laughs> wow. It was just really weird. Wow. And and it was quite it was like quite shocking. You know, it was just like they really did not give a fuck. You know, which yeah. Is, well, how did that? I mean, coming out of the that 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 era in music where you know things were taken much more seriously in like the late '60s and early '70s, and then yeah. the, the the punk thing was. I mean, that's when I got into music was was from punk from some punk right. from like a few years before. Um, yeah, for me, uh, that's what got me into uh, that's what got me into playing music, not listening to music. Because right. before that, I was all into like prog and and stuff yeah. like that. And then it punk came around, I was like, 
oh my god you know i had that moment where it was like this is amazing um but but um i was curious one thing i wanted to ask you is how bad was it in the uk because because all the stuff all the doc i'm a huge documentary junkie it's like all the stuff on the sex pistols and that punk scene uh that documentary on the damned is really good i just saw not long ago they were talking about just how miserable everything was in the UK at that time. And that's kind yeah. of how punk came out of that because everyone was so angry it, and everything was falling apart. And I'm just curious your perspective true. on that. That is very true. I mean, it was a pretty sort of dark time, you know, in the mid seventies onwards, mm. there was a lot of, you know, uh, strikes and stuff. Mm. Um, garbage and out on the sidewalk and garbage Patrick, strike you know, and stuff. Right. Well, people, you know, yeah, lots of, you know, the, the electricity would get cut off all the time. There was a lot of unemployment. Mm-hmm. So it was a, it was a pretty kind of miserable, miserable time. But I think the punk thing, you know, it came out sort of partly of this, not exactly political, but just sort of discontent with, right. you know, there's there's no jobs to be had, you know. It's yeah. kind of it's just a fucked up, <laughs> fucked up Sense world. Sense of hopelessness. So, yeah, imagine. yeah. So you know, I wasn't, I you know, I wasn't exactly in tune with that feeling, to be honest, because you know, I'd already been signed up by a label as a mm, singer songwriter. Right, you know, yeah, yeah. But I did quite, I did understand this sort of frustration with the whole sort of thing that I become like Genesis and prog rock. And just because you can play 13, eight right. seven, fucking, you know, <laughs> ridiculous amount of notes in a second, you know, that's ultimately pointless. Right. Right. <laughs> you know, you know, I, so I, I, I've never been into prog rock for the record. I have not, I never liked it. I, and you so know, I, let me tell you why I got into Prague. I, tr- the thing is, it's like, I got into Prague. I was in high school. I was like a rock and roll. I was born in 67. So mm-hmm. I grew up with like my brother and sister, my older brother and sister, like the monkeys, uh, you know, Bobby Sherman, yeah. <laughs> that sort of thing. And then the Beatles <laughs> came around. And then I remember I got my first record was an Aerosmith record. Then it was ACDC. And it was like rocking stuff throughout the yeah. 70s. And before punk came around, I was like, I want something more you know some a lot of this rock stuff is just so kind of like dumb yeah too it's like it's like i want i want something more so i started list trying to find these bands that were like that could really play their instruments because i i kind of respected technical proficiency so i started looking into like uk that band uk and marillion remember marillion bands like that and it's like they never elp it's like they never quite grabbed me there was a couple bands like uh that i stuck with like rush and yes and stuff that i really liked but they wrote like cool tuneful songs it's like the songwriting was good but the bands that just noodled and stuff i I could never get into them you know It's more so, about yeah. technique, you yeah, know, yeah. technique, which is why a lot of jazz is sort of passes me by too. I'm afraid, right. yeah. just because it can seem to be, you know, it's fantastically accomplished a lot of it, but I, you know, kind of doesn't yeah. really, you know, <laughs> right. same, same thing. Yeah, so I think there was a big thing with that, you know, that the, it was almost the um, the punk thing, like you almost you didn't have to be a musician. Right. Yep. To be in a punk band. Three, three chords of an attitude. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Uh, I remember um, Alex James from Blur telling me, a, I thought it was a story, it is actually a joke, and a story about how, you know, some guy came to him and said, could, would, he, would Alex teach him to play the bass? 
And so Alex said, yeah, sure, you know, you know, come around my place. So this guy comes around and Alex says there's four strings, right? This is the E string, this is the A string. So look, the bottom string is the E string. So just like go down, 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 down. They go away and practice going ding, 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 ding on the E string and come back in a week. So the guy came back and did that. And so Alex said, okay, the next string up is the A string. So practice doing that. It's a little, move your fingers and go, dun, 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 dun. So the guy, the guy goes away. And I said, well, what happened? He said, Alex said, well, the guy never came back. He never came back. I didn't see him, but I saw him a couple of years later. So why didn't he come back? He said, I was getting a lot of work. <laughs> That's what's known as a bass player joke, I guess. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a huge bass fan, actually. It's like, I love... I love really good bass players. Like I love, uh, 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 that's another reason that I really yeah. like rush is cause Getty Lee is a really awesome bass player. And John Entwistle's was yeah. one of my favorite bass yeah. players. Anyway, yeah. I'm sorry. Um, no, no, no. It's yeah, yeah. Shoot the breeze about it all. Yeah. <laughs> so what, so, I mean, what, what, what bands before sorry, you get go. into that, what bands yeah. were you really into around that time period? Like what were your favorites that you were into? Well, this the thing was that um, I just around that time we're talking just before punk really got going. So, nineteen seventy six, seventy seven. I was in London and I'd met um, a few people, and we we formed a band called Advertising, mm. not the adverts that so we got confused with all the time, <laughs> irritatingly. But we were more inspired by um, sort of the American art version of it like mm. the velvet underground mm -hmm. and the people who seemed to be doing more what we were doing we were more interested in making really disposable pop mm. um which is why uh, in the end when we got signed we got signed to emi we toured with blondie a lot we, oh, we wow. just blondie were just when denis denis hit number one we were on tour with them so we were more influenced by that the it's New York thing, which stems from the Velvet Underground for right. me, mm -hmm. you know, yep. spill it, spilling over into bands like television, mm -hmm. you know, so that that's really where we were at. Kind of a more intellectual version of right. saying fuck you. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, so that's what that's what I did. And, you know, I was part of that scene. So but inevitably, because punk was like headlines everywhere. Right. We, you had to sort of slightly not conform to it all, but ally yourself with that kind of right, right attitude. That's kind I of the, the, funny. I was looking through a lot of old press stuff at the time and reviews of us, and there was one review actually comparing us to the Clash in the sense that you know we we used to wear like really brightly coloured, ridiculously horrible coloured <laughs> clothes, but they the Clash did had this sort of weird fashion thing too when they came out they yeah. had sort of you know t-shirts with slogans written on them and ripped clothes and stuff right. um but we were we were we we were i think it's always wrong to say you're ahead of your time you're just wrong <laughs> <laughs> but people were not prepared for a band to kind of ironically say hey we're shit right. we're rubbish yeah, we're yeah, trash yeah. Yep. we're trashy that didn't catch on till the nineties, really. Yep. You could be like a trashy totally. thing, which has connections to glam in a way, right. I suppose. But, yeah, yeah. but um, yeah, so so we didn't, you know, we didn't do too well. We made an album and a few singles, and that's it. Ended there. That right. was 
was my 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 thing about that. As a matter of fact, actually, one of the producers that we said we would like to produce the album was John Cale. Oh, really? Wow. And and um, there was a point in which we was the record company set us up in a you know rehearsal studio, and they flew John Cale over, and uh, he just got off the plane, and he got straight in the cab and came to our rehearsal studio. And wow. it's very nice and everything. Uh, and uh, he said, okay, well, just you know, play me play me some of your songs. Play me some of them. And he's like sort of sat, sat down on the floor, leaning against the wall. So we started up into our first song. And we were about like a minute into it. And we could just see. Obviously, the poor man had jet lag. He just <laughs> his eyes. His eyes slowly closing. And he just, he just fell asleep. Leaning against the wall. <laughs> what a bummer, man. <laughs> we're doing our first song. So we were like. Uh, what, what you know? So we we gotta stop. <laughs> Better play louder. <laughs> what, should what should we do? Do we? What do we wake him up? Or, you know. So in the end, we thought we'll go. And, we'll go. And, <laughs> we'll go to the local cafe and have some lunch. And, and let we'll him sleep. <laughs> Le- leaving him asleep. Oh my god! Right. And when we came back, he'd gone. Oh my god! <laughs> <laughs> it's hilarious. Wow. Anyways, that was <laughs> amazing. That was the kind of. Um, Strange uh, missed opportunity, maybe. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> a bummer, man. That's a bummer. <laughs> so, Indeed. What, so what? What were the? What were at that at that t- around that time? What were the bands that you were really into? Like the 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 music well, you were listening to? We liked Blondie. I mean, Blondie. Oh, oh yeah, you were saying Velvet Underground. Well, yeah, and the, well, more the New York of, stuff. Know, they were making intelligent pop. You mm-hmm. know. That, basically a new new sounding pop and though right. we toured with them really quite a lot though it's clear to me that most of the audience were there to look up to be harry's skirt more right. than <laughs> they were to, to certainly not to see a support band so i can remember lots of bottles being aimed in our direction <laughs> at the time <laughs> yeah you know that's funny that you mentioned the thing the the uh the, the that aspect of of these bands that you're into because I remember so around I was like 10, 10 years old in 77 and I had these older kids in my block. They were into like uh they're into punk in 77 78 and they used to play it for me and I used to think it was really dumb. I I used to like make <laughs> jokes, it's so dumb. And then by the when I got into punk what probably was uh I don't know 6 or 7 years later I was, I, someone turned me up, made a, like a compilation tape of all these punk bands. And it was kind of like later stuff. And it was, yeah. uh, it was the Minutemen, it, which is a really, they're, they're like a later I, yeah. punk okay. band. They don't sound like punk. They're like this weird, funky, it, totally this, its own thing. And uh, um, yeah. Dead Kennedys, because they were like really kind of smart with their yeah. lyrics and stuff. And it's like the bands I liked were in that punk scene were like the smart ones, the ones right. that, that were doing yeah. something different. And when you talk to these bands from this era, I think it might even be considered post-punk maybe. Cause we're talking like 1980, 81. And a lot yeah. of people, a lot of people I know older folks that were around during the punk era, like oh, it only lasted for like two years. Punk yeah. was only like two or three years, but, um, uh, 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 the, the one thing that, that you hear a lot of these bands say was that back then in their time, punk was having your own sound and doing something different and creative. 
So yeah. it's like they got a different version of the original punk, which really was just kind of anger and rebellion yeah. and aggression. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yes, well, which is why, you know, out of that scene emerged bands like Talking Heads, right. really, you know, uh, who, you know, they could they could fit into it because, mm -hmm. well, David Byrne was just so fucking weird. Right, you know, right, right. Awkward on stage. <laughs> totally. but, uh, but, you know, clearly that was some more, yeah, uh, sort of thinking thinking bands. Right. Yeah, who that's the kind of thing that I, I found much more interesting yeah. to listen to. The subsequent, I mean, I knew, I met all these people at the time. I Glenn Matlock, you know, from the Sex Pistols, you know, he's, mm -hmm. he's quite a good friend over the oh, years. Cool. I've seen him quite quite a lot, but you know, he he of course got booted out. Right, but he was that pop element. He was the pop element in the band. He, he was, was why they they, they, he's they the man who wrote all these. He's the why he's the reason they had all those catchy songs. If you had, if you didn't exactly. have him, it wouldn't have happened. Exactly. I don't think. And they, it was a real, real nasty, nasty thing that happened with him. And I, we, I could see that happening because I, you know, I'd sort of, Glenn and I were sort of on nodding terms, you know, around mm -hmm. being around the London scene at that time. But when the um, Sid Vicious came along, when I, <laughs> I had, it's a, the dubious pleasure of together with this other singer in my band of having a fight with Sid Vicious. <laughs> and not that I'm, I'm, I'm no, I don't hit anyone. I'm not, I'm not a violent person at all. At a very early Clash gig, but he was really a bit sort of psychopathic, I think, and a bit of a nasty piece of work, you wow. know. And I, I, I never liked him, and I just, I felt so sorry for Glenn at the time. Yeah. Yeah, but, he, was, um, he was he was an awful bass player. He was fucking terrible. Sid Vicious. Well, that's the thing. He wasn't the bass. He couldn't <laughs> I mean, even play the bass. He, he they, they would the turn guy, him down. Alex James maybe taught. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> maybe that was him. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Anyway, um, yeah. So yeah. So you know, I know a lot of people from from that from that time. A lot of people I've met subsequent to the time, like Steve Severin from Susie and the Banshees. Oh, you know, wow. we hung out a fair bit over cool. the years but um yeah it didn't it didn't work for me you know none of the bands i was in after that i was in i was, sort of became a record producer at that point right yeah We're heading yeah. into the 80s now how did you get into becoming a producer i mean how do you get, well, how does that happen i we got dropped by emi because nobody bought our first album mm -hmm. um so uh, I was just sort of wondering what the hell to do. And I think I met, I can't remember this hand, but I, I met, uh, there was a, um, a manager of various bands called Jazz Summers at the time. He's, he's been a few years dead now. Who, who um, I don't know, I think he saw in me somebody who could help him out with his, his whole sort of roster of new bands that he mm. had. Um and he said, you know, do you fancy producing someone? Of course, of course, I've been in studios quite a lot. Right. So I knew a bit, a bit about what that meant. And for me, there's different types of producers. There's record producers who are quite technical in terms of getting sounds. And there's ones who are more kind of like rearranging the song to make it into a right. kind of, uh, sort of, which is more of what appealed to me, mm. to turn the song if there wasn't a middle eight, let's try and figure out a middle eight in it or something so it goes somewhere else and mm -hmm. blah, blah. More like a, from a so oh. songwriter standpoint, kind of. Yeah, exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. Uh, so I he I started producing all of his bands. You know, one of them was like a mod band, which, which is another thing which came out of punk, like right. the jam, yep. you know, a sort of mod 
version of punk. Yeah. Um, so I was producing these other these bands for him, really, and it seemed to go quite well. So lots of different record companies asked me to produce their different um, different bands, and one of them was A and M Records, and they had a band called Livewire, mm. who were closest uh, musically to, to Dire Straits in that kind of way. Okay. So. They asked me to do that, and I did one album with them. And just before we did the album, their guitarist left or something. So I played guitar on that album and produced it. Comes to the second album, and they said, you know, well, do you want to write some songs with it? So I did that too. And then they said, well, why are we going on tour? Why don't you come on tour? So I sort of joined the band. Oh, wow. But, um, <laughs> We were, that was never really successful. It was successful in places like Italy. We used to play to two or 3,000 people a night in Italy. But, you know, it's like that thing we have here, bands who, who say they're big in Japan. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> There's a band, probably one of my favorite bands is, a, is a, a, again, kind of a, or maybe a post-punk band called No Means No. I bet you've never heard of No Means No. Nobody, Nobody's ever heard of No Means No, and they're <laughs> fucking... It, the people that are into them are so into them because they're so good. I'm gonna send right. you. I'm gonna send you some links afterwards. Okay, but okay, you cool. gotta hear them because they're so so good. Um, right. But they're really big in Germany. They're a Canadian okay. band, but it's like they were yeah. huge in Germany. And like when I went, I had an art show in Germany, and I went over there and I knew they were popular. So I'd ask people, "You ever heard of Nobody's No?" And they all heard of them. Right. <laughs> but it's like yes. none, none of my friends know about them. No, that's, I, I, and what I meant, by the way, is was not to put down Japan. I'd love to be oh, big yeah, in Japan. Yeah. It was just the idea that you're big somewhere yep, else and not in Japan, where you yeah. live. You know? <laughs> exactly. Some bands <laughs> just don't hit in the country. Yeah, yeah. It's really strange. yeah, exactly, exactly. But I produced. Um, you know, one of those post-punk bands is a band called the Sex Gang Children. Oh, really? Who, who, yeah, so I produced them a fair bit. Wow. And that has a kind of weird bridge over into uh, being a film composer, okay. which I'll, I'll get to shortly. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, yeah, they were sort of post-punk, goth, quite gothy. Yeah, yeah. Sort of thing. Um, and I, after producing various, also I became a sort of a twelve-inch remix person. That for for some reason, I used to, you know, people used to ask me to do like really wacky twelve-inch uh, remix. Right, right. Are we getting into was, like early eighties now or late seventies? Yeah, are we we're getting now? to early eighties. Okay, okay. We're going into into early eighties, um, and you know, even quite successful sort of pop uh, artists. Like Nick Kershaw, I don't know if you are aware of Nick Kershaw. Mm -hmm. He had a huge hit, maybe even in America, called "Wouldn't It Be Good." Because wouldn't it be good to anyway? Uh, <laughs> anyway, don't, don't worry about it. it doesn't ring a bell. But I used to do wacky it. things, right? Usually with a razor blade, cut. You know, because there was no digital back in the day. Yeah, with cutting back in the day. Because <laughs> uh, and also because you know. You just gotta be quite mathematical about you work out what one the length of one beat is on a piece of tape. Right. Then you can then you can edit, you know, eighths or sixteenths or whatever of a, right. of a beat. Right. If you know how long that lasts yeah, yeah. on the tempo of a song. So for example, the wouldn't it be good hit, which was already like number one or something in the UK, they said, Could I do a twelve inch extended version of it? And I was just lying in bed thinking wouldn't it be good if you, that's how the tune goes and then I thought wait a minute if you repeat the three first notes of it it turns into the twilight zone theme 
so i started adding all this insane stuff that's awesome so that it's out there on youtube you can find it they the remix i did of it oh, cool, cool. they literally in the middle of the remix goes into the twilight zone excellent <laughs> everything is sort of backwards and fucking nuts that's cool. so i became this 12 inch you know guy uh and was then uh, on tour as well with the band Livewire in Italy. Mm. So this is a crucial thing for my career, really. Uh, so we were playing around Italy, and in Rome, uh, we met the guy from the A&R department at RCA Records, who distributed A&M Records in Italy. You know, uh, he came to our gig. And after the gig, we, we were out for a meal, and he asked me, if I, because I was the band's producer, if I would be interested in producing any Italian singers or bands. So I said, yeah, sure, sure. So, so I, I had this association. So we finished the tour and went back to London, and then I get a call, you know, would you like to come over and, and produce this artist? So I started doing that, and the first album I did was – really good a really great italian singer songwriter you know who was very into peter gabriel's sort of quite indie weird stuff but very very good and that was a kind of critical hit as a result of which a very big italian pop star called renato zero that's his you know people never heard of it which is renato zero is like if you translate it being called ronald ronald nothing <laughs> but he was huge. That's kind of a good a punk huge, name. <laughs> long, sort of wavy hair, quite, and, and wore sort of glam makeup. Right. So he was sort of crossed between sort of Alice Cooper and Elizabeth Taylor. He <laughs> <laughs> was very gay, right. you know, glam stuff, very good, you know. So he, and he had this sort of real appeal, like Bowie did, sort of cross gender appeal. Right. Be yourself. It doesn't matter. Who cares if you're gay? Mm. But anyway. Uh, I made a double album with this guy, which came out and it sold six million right, copies. Right, I read that. It was like a huge hit, yeah, right? it was a huge hit, <laughs> you know, which was just astounding to me. You know, I was what is the like, music? Really... The music? Sorry? What's the music sound like? Are you Peter Gabriel, you're it's saying, like, kind of? No, no, no. It's not. No, this is no. That no. That was the. Uh, that's the first guy I did. Oh, oh sorry. Zero. It's like. A lot of it is sort of big ballad Italian stuff. Uh, okay. Like with the gravelly voice, you know, and all orchestral arrangements. Okay. But, the, you know, the cool guitar solo in it and everything. Very, it's very Italian. Right. <laughs> uh, and he was just a huge, huge star. Wow. Um, and has continued kind of being in a, in a way, kind of way. So that sort of gave me this whole intro in Italy. I was there a lot. I then started writing songs for people, had top 10 hits and stuff, writing um, songs for, for other artists there. Wow. I guess what we're leading towards, I don't know, unless you have other questions. No, no, I'm just, I'm, I'm just listening. This is fascinating. You know, so it was, um... <coughs> excuse me, you can cut that out. Uh... <laughs> yeah, so um, uh, I was, you know, becoming known around Rome, you know, right, as right. being this new sort of kid, whatever, not exactly a kid, but um, young producer doing well here. And I think I was at a party and um, I was introduced to this guy, I had no idea who he was, who was a, a film director called 
Dario Argento. Yeah. And I, I, I was like, Psh, I had no idea. <laughs> he seemed nice enough guy. And he said to me, uh, he said in his very sort of um, not very good English, his English is still not great, actually. <laughs> he said, um, he said, you know, he was he had this film he was doing and oh, the 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 guys who've done my previous soundtracks, you know, their band split up and there's two of them doing it. And there's, I think there's too much music for them to do at the time. Would you be interested in doing some music? And I was like, you know, yeah, sure. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, I, I had no interest in being a film composer. I had no knowledge about it. Really? Wow. I was not into it at all. Wow. I mean, I remember when my mum took me to see Lawrence of Arabia. <laughs> when I was, I don't know, I was quite young. But um, remembering the music from that and just registering that and thinking, oh, that's, you know, that's a, it's a nice piece of music, you know, right. and, and adding to the drama. Uh, but aside from that, I really had no interest in film music at all. Wow. Um, and so... It came about that I was, you know, quite soon after that, about a week later, put in a studio, well, with these two guys who, people who are horror music fans will know exactly who they are because they are a band called Goblin. That's what I was going to ask, if these are the Goblin guys. Because it's like, when you, when you talk about, you know, it's, there's certain movies, I'm sure, you know, you have your favorites, there's certain movies where you just love the soundtrack. One of those, and speaking of Dario Argento, for me is like Dawn of the Dead is one of my favorite movies. Right. And, and I love the soundtrack, and that's the Goblin soundtrack. The Goblin and they were like a yeah. kind of a proggy band, right? They're a proggy band. They are a proggy band. Yeah, yeah. And that's partly why, you know, me not particularly liking <laughs> prog rock. I was then I was in the studio with the two guys, Claudio Simonetti, and Fabio Pignatelli, he was the bass player. Mm. Um, you know, and sort of throwing this, and I think, you know, they were they were probably thinking, who the fuck's this guy? You know, <laughs> we're supposed to be doing the music. <laughs> yeah, Dario right. Yeah, that was a bit right. So I felt a bit uncomfortable. Yeah. Um, so, uh, and also not least, you know, I mean, Claudio is an amazing keyboard player. You know, he's. He, and he's got like he's just got hundreds of synths, and so his studio was like, you know. And I, of course, I can play the piano, you know, quite adequately, mm -hmm. but that's not I at this point in my life. You know, I'd much rather play the guitar and sort of make that the main, right. the main thing that I wanted to do um, because I wasn't a film composer at this point. So we didn't really get along you know i wasn't really oh no really you didn't get along <laughs> That's no <laughs> well not really i mean it wasn't like any bad feeling it was just the awkwardness I, I i just felt like a you know spare prick right right there and uh i just <laughs> you know so it was sort of agreed that um they would then find me another recording studio and we would look at the movie and go well you write that bit and i'll write that bit okay. so in the end you know there was about five or six cues that they wanted me to do. Um, and that's how that's how it started. So I went into a studio on my own and just rented, you know, a couple of synths and some other weird things. I had no idea what to do. I really had no <laughs> really? idea. I mean, <laughs> uh, 
the first scene, I've told this story before, but the first scene that I was asked to do was the scene in Phenomena, this is the film we're talking about, mm. which is um, where Jennifer Connolly, the young Jennifer Connolly, she's being chased down this sort of underground tunnel by the psychopath serial killer, mm. and she falls backwards into this pit of kind of gunk of body parts and blood and, mm. you know, and it's splashing around like this, you know. I was thinking, well, <laughs> what the hell do I do for that? <laughs> so, you know, I just I decided to make a kind of like musical, well, not even musical, just a collage of almost unlistenable sounds. Mm. Like, you know, when you run your plectrum slowly down the bass string of the guitar, that's right. a like, yeah, the equivalent of running your fingernails down a blackboard. That's sort of <laughs> nasty. I I asked them to rent me a violin. I don't play the violin, mm. <laughs> which was the whole point. Mm -hmm. So I just made this kind of weird concoction of sounds and stuff, and I I, I was very nervous, obviously. And, and when Dario came to hear this first cue, and um, you know, I put it on and. He sort of sat there <laughs> listening to it. Um, he was playing at the time. He was he was playing with something in his hands, which I could see was like a little a little baby doll <laughs> with sort of longish sort of sticky up hair. Really weird. And he was uh -huh. playing playing with this thing, and I played with the music, and he was still playing with the doll. And when it finished, I sort of looked nervously at him, and, and, and he said, I love it. Oh, excellent. <laughs> Fantastic. And then he got up, he held this doll up like it was a crucifix, and backed out of the room as if I was a vampire. <laughs> so that was, that was my first day on the job. Uh, That's awesome, man. What, what an so, excellent way uh, to get, get And then subsequently, I, they wanted more songs. They had already had a, a, an Iron Maiden track and they had a right. Motor track. Mm -hmm. And um, they wanted some more. So I got San Andy, the singer from the Sex Gang Children, to come over to Rome because he's got a really strange voice. Mm -hmm. you know? And I thought I just wanted him to do weird moaning and strange odd sounds. This is what he did. And we, we wrote two or three songs together, which are in the film. Um, yeah. Uh, which yeah, and that's basically it. That was that's how I started being a film composer. Wow, wow, yeah, and so, yeah, that I imagine that would be, that whole thing would be nerve wracking if you've never done it before. Because I've I've thought about like, I've always been curious. I mean, I have a friend who uh, a, a guy who's a named Chris Velasco is a collector of my, my artwork. Mm -hmm. He's probably my biggest collector. And he composes music for uh, video games, and okay. um, and uh, also film and TV and stuff. And uh, I don't know. To me, it's like I'm always asking him, "What's like? How do you? How do you do it? How do you?" And he's kind of like, you know, he makes it seem like it's not that big a deal. But to me, it's like it would be a very big deal to try and figure out where to even start. You know, it's like to come up with ideas. It's like do, I, I'm, I'm guessing that they they give you cues where where we want music in this part, we want music in this part, and then do they give you an example of like make it kind of like this, or here's well, some inspiration, or how do you where do you even they start? They do 
most places except Italy. <laughs> <laughs> in Italy, you know, it's and I I grew to and sort of in hindsight really appreciate the way they do it. So um, in this particular in phenomena, just because um, goblin or the remains of them had to know, you know, we had to know which bits scenes we were going to do. So we worked out pretty much okay. between us, right. not, you know, Dario wasn't really involved in those decisions. But after that, um, and pretty soon after Phenomena, Dario was producing uh, a film called Demons, Demons 2. Right. I was doing the second one. And Simonetti or Goblin, I think Simonetti on his own had done Gob the first Goblin's uh, demon film. So uh, there was no real discussion about where the music should go. It was pretty much like, you know, here's the, here's the, they would give me a VHS, which of course, in those days, I had no way of synchronizing anything. Right. <laughs> so, you know, I would get on a plane with a VHS tape and go back to London. Uh, or you know, Phenomena is the only Italian soundtrack I did in Italy. Oh wow! It's really bizarre. This yeah, I used yeah. to go to Rome, watch through the film with the director, maybe take a few notes about some ideas, get on a plane, and go back to this little bedroom I had in Clapham in South West London, <laughs> and a little studio, and I do it all there. You know, wow. it's not, nothing glamorous or anything at all. Right. Um, but after my name started getting around amongst this community, it's quite a small community of horror people, especially in Rome, right. in Italy in general. I used to get phone calls from people I I never met and have never met saying, <laughs> uh, we're making this film. It's a horror film. Could you just make us a tension theme? Say, make it five minutes long. Oh, and like a chase theme, make it five minutes long. Oh, and maybe a love. There's a love, love, love scene. Make it five minutes long. <laughs> <laughs> and I used to send this to them, and they would stick it on their film. And I, I've witnessed, you know, I've sometimes accompanied those tapes back to Rome, just to show them where I think this might go. And they had this way of doing it. They would, in these days, of course, this is before. Um, you know, digital editing and right. so they have a moviola machine which has 35 mil magnetic right, tape yeah, yeah, yeah. thing on it the little. and they transfer your music onto 35 mil to put the audio on and they would just they'd stick a theme on as you know it was great sort of language barriers well i i was learning italian i could speak a bit of italian but it was always like yeah yeah uh -huh. yeah so so you started there and then they and they put it on and they and then the director and the editor are nodding away yeah yeah it's great 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 and then he's then I suddenly see them look at each other like that <laughs> and they stop the thing rewind a few seconds cut just cut it <laughs> and try another piece from that point on wow so it was like you know there was no cross phase like we could do beautiful cross phase right. and fade out this that everything now is all it all fits perfectly change the tempo you know no they cut the tape stick a little bit on but it had the the effect of propelling you through the film like a you know like a sort of painting right. with very broad strokes right. you know and i actually think that's what appeals to, to a lot of people is the kind of the roughness, the, mm -hmm. the kind of rawness of these films, the terrible dubbing. Right. <laughs> no, 
it's become totally it's like it's 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 its own style it's kind of become it its own, own style you know um and and i i personally i love it i just i don't know i just i'm, I'm into it i mean i i came to appreciate it right you know yeah what I mean? yeah it's like the spaghetti it, it westerns makes... are the same way it's like they, there's this just a there's a feeling about it that you you know you come to to love i think exactly and it's the same with uh, spaghetti westerns you know yeah, that's what i was so sort of badly dubbed right yeah the, and and the, and the uh the foley effects that are just kind yes. of overdone and it's like yes I, but it I makes like a it. style yeah it's a yeah, style yeah. that becomes sort of just fun to right. watch yeah, yeah distinctive yeah. and i think this is why tarantino likes all of these kind of mm -hmm. things that i did i mean I, I've been oblivious of it until quite recently. That actually, one of his famous, his favorite um, Italian horror films is one that I scored, the Stage Fright. Oh right, uh, Michele Suave. And uh, you know, I had no idea that any of these people would ever see any of these films. <laughs> I mean, they, you know, this is during the VHS right. days. You know, I thought this is just my little secret. Right. I can just keep going to Italy and doing these movies, and no one's ever going to see them. So I can just, you know, <laughs> I'm great. not proud of a lot of the stuff that I wrote. <laughs> yeah, but now they become classics, cult classics, you know? Some have, but. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were doing this, you had this little studio. Yeah. Um, what were you kind of recording everything? Was it like a, 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 a like an, an early a home studio i mean nowadays yeah. it's on your laptop you can kind of do it all but it's uh, what kind it of was... equipment did you have back then okay um to begin with mm -hmm. i had a little a sequencer which was probably i think it was probably cubase running on a commodore 64 wow wow 64k yep <laughs> 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 I know. Um, which was a very simple 16 track sequencer okay. but you know they had just invented midi so right you know you could as far as i remember for the first few years there was no velocity right you couldn't be putting any feeling into yeah, it. yeah. <laughs> it's just dandle, dandle, dandle. you know it's like people remember tubular bell you know tubular yep. bells itself became a classic through the exorcist right. i mean in film terms not obviously right in its own way it was great um so sequencing on the commodore 64 um and i you know i had a few synths but i, I would just sort of rent some stuff that was coming out just to see if there's any oh. inspiring sounds and shit on it that i could use um i'm trying to think yeah around about that time the time of demons 2 which we're talking about 86 or something mm. I remember renting um, this sampler. Its name is completely escaping me now, which is crazy. But it was a um, God. I can't remember it. Sorry about that. It's too. It's getting too yeah, late. That's right. <laughs> anyway, but uh, um, you know, but you could store the sounds on floppy. You know, like eight-inch yeah. floppy disks. Yep. None of the. You know, and there were some <laughs> interesting things you could do with it. So I literally, I think my career writing film music you know, like you said earlier coincided so much with the development of synthesizers mm -hmm. and their possibilities and then samplers um so i was very lucky you know to be able to do that you know plus i would uh i had i think an eight track as i recall multi-track running on maybe it was on half inch tape 
Mm-hmm. You know, I had a Fostex okay. 16 track. I may have had a Fostex 8 track before that. Right. So that I could, you know, put those things down and then just simply bounce them down onto quarter inch. Wow. That was it. Wow. That was it. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. Those, but, are, those old. very re- unable to synchronize it. Right, right. But th- those old, uh, I used to have a, 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 two, two, uh, a, a four track tascam reel to reel and it sounded right. really good i mean it, yeah. i was kind of amazed at how good good that stuff sounded yes which is what the beatles essentially right. tracked, didn't they and then they would bounce three tracks down onto one track and then, people, you know yeah people don't realize like bouncing how how you have to get it all right and put it onto one yeah. track to add to add, take advantage of the other track absolutely it's pretty amazing absolutely i mean by the time it got to the 90s you know i mean i'm skipping through a bit here but you know, I was able to have a, get my own 24-track machine and it's squeezed right. into the bedroom. But, you know, I was just simply enabling me to put down more tracks and giving me more flexibility, really. Did you get a Fairlight? Did you ever get a Fairlight? That Too was, expensive. Yeah, those me. things were crazy expensive, right? Yeah. So, no. (laughs) (laughs) You don't understand, you know, and everyone assumes, oh, you're starting in films, doing all that, it must have made a lot of money. You know, I would do like, they'd give me like two grand to move. It wasn't like, you know, I was not. So I couldn't afford to pay lots of other musicians. I was trying to eke out my own living. So I did it all myself. You know, I mean, you know, I was lucky that I could do guitars and I could do keyboards and three keyboards. You could do drums and blah, blah, blah. So well, that's why I was John, just a one man band. John hmm? Carp John Carpenter um said he used to do his own music on a synthesizer because he couldn't afford anything else. And it's like he knew yeah, a but little he bit. He used to use one note. Right. <laughs> ding ding ding. <laughs> that's really bitchy, ding, isn't ding, it? Ding, ding, ding. <laughs> but he but actually he, he made some really great music. I, I always really enjoyed the music in his movies. But 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 I I, yeah. I, I dig yeah, that yeah. analog synth stuff. I really like that. Yes. Exactly. Feel, you know, I was I was into it at the time when it came, when those movies came out. It's like I I actually bought a synth. I saved up and yeah. bought uh, a realistic synthesizer, which was a copy of the Minimoog by this right. company, the uh, realistic company. And so it's like it was like really expensive at the time. This analog synthesizer, I still have it. Yeah. But um, just because I was into that and I was into Devo, like like late seventies kind of uh, analog synth stuff, I really, yeah. really, really love that sound. But I just thought it was funny that the reason he did use the synthesizer was because he could rent it and he yeah. couldn't yeah. afford to hire anybody to do the music, and it ended up being kind of its own style, you know. Because of I mean, that. I think it was, he had a guy called Alan Howarth, I think, who worked right, with him. Yeah, right, uh, right. But maybe right. not to begin with. I don't right. really know the, the history of it. Yeah, I think. But yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it was whatever was available, you know, was was um, you know, and I, I though I would, I'm, I'm not a great sort of programmer. Mm-hmm. I'm too impatient to do that. So I would just flip through presets till I heard something. Like, oh, that's good. Right. You know, <laughs> so there's a lot of my, of that sort of just sort of slow filtered bass sounds. Going, right. Which is great for horror stuff. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just one finger. Right. Um, <laughs> um, yeah. So, Technically, it was it was interesting. I mean, eventually, I, um, for the mid sort of eighty six or eighty seven, I was in L A. and I was in a music shop in Santa Monica Boulevard, and they had this uh, the Apple, what would it be, Apple SE 
mm. computer, which was, you know, the all-in-one beige, right. you know, <laughs> units. And someone, and they had this this software called Performer, which later became Digital Performer. But, you know, I acquired it, I think it's about 1986, and I was in there, and, I, and they showed me you know, what it could do. And it was like, a, you know, you could, with Performer, it was a much more evolved right. sequencer package, you know. So I've, I've, I still work with is a mark of the unicorn it's called motu who make it i work with digital performer still but i remember yeah they still have now. it i wish i did i've just been <laughs> so stupid about throwing away right. all this shit. i wish i'd kept it all but no i don't I yeah don't. It's probably worth a lot nowadays <sighs> yeah yeah <laughs> so so okay so uh you uh you just kind of transitioned into strictly film composing after that. You just kind of kept the ball kept rolling and you just pretty kept doing much, it. Pretty much. I mean, previously I had also been writing music for a lot of ads. Okay. Which was like a form of torture. For me. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm sure the money was better <laughs> with ads. Well, uh, yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I, I do much more money than I did in movies for right. about 10 years. <laughs> but, but, um, but it was the, just the, just the nature of it, the relentless stupidity and uh, kind of obsession with selling fucking things. You oh know? yeah. It's usually the uh, more money you get paid, the more it's like that. I, I found at least in the, in, in my end of the film business, it's like the higher, the bigger budget films and stuff. I, yeah. there seem to be more, uh, more people involved and more paranoia and more like, we have to make sure this thing sells to this oh, demographic cool. and you have to make this thing a little bit different and add this and well, blah, blah. I'll, t- I'll tell you a good story about this sums it up really for me. The, the worst thing was, of course, right, what the advertising agencies used to do was they would get like 10 people to submit a demo, uh-huh. <laughs> right? They'd pay you a couple of hundred quid or something and you write a demo and you know, inev- invariably, you didn't get the job. Right, so you're all competing. You know, so I was constantly doing demos for things. But there was one occasion I got called in to do a demo. And this was for Saatchi and Saatchi, the big advertising agency. And uh, I remember they called me in. So they sit me down with a bunch of inverted commas creatives. <laughs> <laughs> and who are going to tell me, who are going to tell me about what this music should be about. <laughs> so this happened to coincide with this was the first time on UK TV that they were allowed to to advertise feminine hygiene products, meaning <laughs> tampons. What year is this? Okay. What? What year is this? This must be like mid eighties or something like that. <laughs> mid eighties, I'd say eighty four, so three, four, something like that. That was the first okay. time. <laughs> so. So I had to sit around the table with these people saying, so we want, so the music should be like, it should be, it's got, should be strong, but feminine. It should be, you know, it's got to be flexible, but absorbent. Sort of like, you know, I, I mean, I, it's just like being in an insane academy. <laughs> Gotta say. So I go home and I write my tampon thing, <laughs> which is, summarily rejected okay okay <laughs> you're not gonna get it it's not they don't it's not they don't like it they don't want it the next week 
I got asked to submit a demo to write music for British Steel. Okay. <laughs> British Steel. Right. You can imagine what that would be. And I thought, fuck it, I'm going to send them my tampon theme. <laughs> And and they loved it. Excellent. <laughs> so, so this just sh- this shows you everything about well, one, you know, music can mean a lot of different things right. to a lot of people. Two, probably I don't understand women very well. <laughs> Something like that. But my obviously my tambour music was full of like rigid, inflexible <laughs> I don't know. Oh, it's just hilarious. Oh, that's so uh, there we go. <laughs> And it does show that music is a very kind of uh, subjective, you know, well, thing. Well, yeah, yeah, definitely. And it also shows that the people in charge just don't. Many, don't many, <laughs> many, many of the people in charge at the higher levels in, in the film, at least in the film industry, which is where I've had my experience, really have their just have no clue. They have no clue. They have no artistic um any kind of artistic instincts or anything. It's like a lot of the, the ones I've seen are like, they're like money people. They're like bankers, you know, and they, they and- are. And there's a lot of different kind of people involved in it all. And I, I, I thought about this quite a lot because the point at which they begin to think about music is usually they've, you know, the, they've raised, they've written the scripts, they've sorted it out, they've raised the money, right. they've storyboarded it, they've gone into production, they've shot the film, they're back in the editing room and they think we need music. Right. So they call somebody like me at the moment of absolute maximum paranoia. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> because nobody knows if what they've made is any good. I saw that. I saw you talking about this with an interview on YouTube and uh, and uh, I never even thought about that. It's like, it's true. It's so true at it's, that point. And, and it's, if you can imagine the pressure with that, right? Yeah, because right. There you have a director sitting there who's been standing in the fucking rain or sweating yep. in the deserts, <laughs> making this film, trying to get the actors to do their thing, being asked a thousand questions a second, you know, and got through this thing. He's got to the editing room. He's trying to make sense of it all. And now he's going to hand it over to me. Right. And you have to save it. It's your your job to save the whole movie. (laughs) Exactly. It's it's kind of like, you know, they don't say it, but that there's that kind of a a pressure. Yeah. Everybody, I mean, every, everybody kind of knows how important music is to a film. So it's like, it's gotta be incredible pressure for you. It is pressure, and it's also because they're also, and I never, I, I well, now I'm much more outspoken, of course, than I used to be. Right. But there would also be like, you know, I'm also one of the first human beings to come and look at this thing who's not been involved in it. Right. So, you know, they're right. sort of nervously looking at me. Oh, is he laughing? Or is, you know, is he, <laughs> is he, they're looking at me as if I'm the audience, you know. Right. <laughs> And so they're, wow. they're sort of wanting me to tell the truth. But of course, you know, <laughs> there's a point at which you want to go, this is fucking shit. You right, know? right. But so, you got to get paid. You got to make money. <laughs> um, it's evolved. I've evolved into telling people the truth in a, in a more constructive way, right. which I found people appreciate more, you know, obviously so, more. Let, than let, me ask, let me ask you this. Have you worked on, have you, have you been shown a copy of something that was just, you could find nothing good to say about it. And if so, how did you handle that? 
because I know I've worked I, on a lot I, of really okay. pieces of shit. I've wa- I've worked on some really bad movies. <laughs> I don't think I've ever told. Well, I I okay. I don't think I've ever told anybody that the film is shit. Right. I have declined a few films on the basis of seeing them. Oh, really? But it, it, yeah, or, but in a nice, the nicest way that I could. Right. Right. Um, I have to say, actually, you know, after we haven't quite got to, to uh, me working with Jodorowsky, right. yet, but yeah, definitely. Um, but I, I'll, I'll save that story actually for after that because I I was going to I, I was going to do another film after that with with him, which I actually t- refused to turn down, not because of him or anything else. But I'll get to that. Okay. okay. Um, I'm trying to think of some something that really didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> I can't. Well, I've I've only inadvertently done it. Okay. I, I remember going, being asked to go and have a viewing of a film, right, which I really thought was awful, and I came out of it thinking I really I don't want to do that. I just don't want to do that. <laughs> and I remember that evening also being invited to the rap party for Goldeneye, the James Bond film, which they were having in this big studio where I recorded a lot of my orchestra stuff. Right. Air Studios, George Martin Studio. But they're having a big rap party in there. And I remember having a conversation with somebody um, uh, asking me, t- saying, uh, mentioning this film and saying, uh, mentioning this film, and what did I think of it? And I said, it was shit. <laughs> it was shit like that. And I felt a friend of mine tugging on my elbow <laughs> like that. And Whispering in my ear, that's the fucking director. Oh, no. So, <laughs> so that's the only time I've done it. Like, you know, I oh didn't mean God. to be so cool, right. but uh, there you go. Thanks for sharing that. <laughs> oh, man. Yeah, it's hard. It's hard. I, I, yeah. I've, I've, you know, I always felt like the, the, the movies that I actually liked that I worked on, um, it was like maybe a quarter of them, if that. It's like so many of them just were either like not good or bad. You know yeah. what I mean? It's and it's so rare when you 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 get you you get a Jodorowsky. You work with a Jodorowsky. Yeah, just call him Jodorowsky. Someone like that, or like a Guillermo del Toro. You know, it's like yeah. It's. I always say that you know I probably would have stayed in the business if it, if if it was consistently great people yeah. to work with that made great yeah. movies like that. But it's not, you know. It's it's it, it's certainly not. And the problem is that you know the stage at which you the composer works on the film, they're still working on it too. So you know the the dialogue's really uneven. Right, there's, right. there's no sound effect. You're listening off, often to the live sound on set, and it's and it's, it seems really amateurish. Right, when you, right. When you're watching it, this happened to me so many times. I've had to like keep reminding myself, even you know now, you know it's just it's not finished. It's going to be great. They're going to clean up all the right, dialogue. Right. They're going to like to you know ch- you know change replace bits of it. You know it's going to have sound design. It's going to have proper yeah, sound effects. I'm sure. So it, it's all you you don't have to remind yourself because most of them look like they've been fucking made by you know a seven year old. <laughs> you know 
on his phone. I'm sure when you were but, first starting too, to, it must have been hard to get past that. You know, not having a lot of experience and being like, "This looks like a it, it, it was student it was. film." You know, the hardest thing was the Italian films where they, because they were at that point in the '80s, the Italians were quite good at making these stuff dubbing it afterwards into various languages and selling them abroad. Right. Now making an English version, but they wouldn't bother. They would, <laughs> when I got it, they would be like an Italian actress speaking in Italian. <laughs> They'd have an American star or fading star <laughs> speaking, you know, in American, maybe a German or French person speaking English with a very heavy accent. Right. And they were going to dub it all. <laughs> So they knew, you know, they were going to just change it all right, into one right. and another language. Right. Um, uh, but, you know, at, at times I hadn't a clue what was going on. Right. People, like, talking in different, I was thought, what the, you know. But, <laughs> I, I actually but, yeah, do get used to it and you have to yeah. get beyond it, I think. Yeah, you have to, yeah. You know. uh, I worked actually the first real uh, film job I had was in Italy. Like I mm -hmm. was I was uh, 18 I think it was 86, somewhere around yeah. there. And yeah. I had never been on an airplane. I've never been out of, I don't think I'd been out of California even because I grew up in California. And they're like, right. hey, do you, I, I started this job at a shop just doing like molds and crap work. Hey, you want to go on set in Italy for, you know, I forget it was like two, three months. And I was like, oh, okay. And so they flew <laughs> me over to Italy and I worked on three movies over there. And, um, it was really amazing. It was really amazing. I mean, for me at the time, it was so cool. And that the uh, the the crew was awesome. The Italian film crew was yeah. really cool, really tight knit. Um, I think the DP was what? was uh, uh, Sergio Salvati, I think, who's like this really kind of famous. He's worked on like he worked on all these spaghetti, yeah. spaghetti westerns yeah. and, and yeah, all these yeah. really cool movies. Super cool guy. Everyone was really nice. You know, it was it was it was a great experience. So, um, and then of course lunch. I don't know if you, have have you been on set when they're shooting on Italian? Any Italian? No, films? I haven't. I haven't. Okay, because they every every lunch break is like, you know, a big deal. Everyone, you know, it's like a late lunch, and then they have these big ass lunches. Everyone's getting drunk. <laughs> it's like yeah, every day. Yeah. It's like this. It's really well, that's cool. The same in the music. You know, when I was producing the Italian pop stars. Oh, it really? Would be the same thing. Yeah, you know, they yeah. Day, and then like two and a half hour, three hour lunch. Right. Mm -hmm. right. Exactly. That's exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool though. I loved it. In Rome, it was. Uh, it's good it was, lifestyle. It was, yeah. yeah. It was. It was awesome. Okay. We got. We got to get to John. Jodorowsky. <laughs> why, why can I? It's so funny because it's like I was practicing saying it before we got on here because I'm a fan. I mean, uh, uh, I think Santa Sangre was the. Uh, it's the first Jodorowsky film i ever saw i think all the right. way through yeah really amazing stuff so how did you get in, in, involved with him well um this is um an argento connection really. oh, so okay. i you know i was um just sort of beginning to make my name it, you know in italy doing these things and i had done phenomena with dario and then Demons with Dario producing and Lamberto Barber mm -hmm. directing. Right. Son of the famous Mario Barber, who kind of yeah. invented you know, European horror, Italian yep. horror. Yeah, yeah, um, big time. And Michele Suave, I'd just done Stage Fright as well. 
And so I was like considered like this new hotshot, you know, guy. So um, Santa Sangre is produced by Dario's brother, Claudio. Oh, I didn't. I didn't realize. I didn't realize. So he was the one who suggested me to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so I was asked. You know, I now I, as I said to you, I had no idea who Dario Argento was when right. I met him. But Jodorowsky, I did because I had seen El Topo, right? You know, when I was at college, okay. And you know, I I never forgot that. You yeah, know, it's like, <laughs> that is just you don't forget that amazing. movie. <laughs> so when I got this call saying, you know, Jodorowsky, you know, um, they're interested in you doing this. Could you come over? So I flew over to Rome, um, and I met him in the cutting room, and now he's, you know, I didn't realized too much at the time this but he's also a musician i mean he had done some music for the holy mountain and el topo okay so um to have someone else do it was you know i felt a bit weird about it. hell yeah <laughs> i wasn't I, I don't think anyone told me until after that meeting but but um so uh he, we sat down and we watched the film on the Moviola, just, you know, on the screen about three, three inches right, by yeah, five. Yeah, yeah, uh, And um, we just watched it, and he didn't really offer much advice with it, except there were certain scenes um, where I sort of stopped, said stop, and I said, you know, for example, uh, I, does it, I don't think it matters about spoilers and this thing, but there's a scene in the film right. where... Um, the the the, um, the mother of the poor disturbed character at the center of it has her arms cut off, right, <laughs> by her philandering, drunken, knife throwing husband. It's such an awesome scene. It's a really in cool the scene. Yeah. So you know, it's it's incredibly dramatic and it's quite bloody and there's sort of blood spurting out. So I said to 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 Alejandro, you know, so do you want me to do something like you know really? Horrible, nasty. He he looked at me. This is very him. Uh, you know, as if I was completely crazy. What? <laughs> Something horrible? <laughs> and he said, "No, no. This is a this is a ecstasy for her. This is this is everything she wants." Right. <laughs> <laughs> didn't very, you know? Okay. Didn't you know? How could you not know yes, that? Exactly. <laughs> you read my mind. You know, um, so you know. But he he really taught me. He and Dario really told me that there's there's not much point in telling people the same information twice. Right. Uh, so, you know, which is, you know, the, the golden rule of Hollywood scoring is to, you know, underline with a thick black pencil what's going on. There's a car chase. Yeah, there's right. <laughs> there's the love theme. Beat you over the head the with it. stuff. It's what I call popcorn duty, right? You know, which you do have a duty to do in certain films. You know, it's like you know, you're just trying to magnify right. the experience of people. But but uh, Jodorowsky, you know, he was interested in me writing the music from a different perspective. In other words, you know, this is from the perspective of the person who's having their arms cut off, and it's not that they're in pain or that it's horrible. It's that this is a, a moment of religious ecstasy. Right. For her. Because she also she worships a saint that has no arms. Right, right. So um, he really told me a, a, a really good 
golden truth yeah. for, for me in, in film scoring, which is to sometimes take an odd perspective on the scene and that it doesn't matter if it confuses people. Right. Uh, yeah. It actually makes people more interested in the film and there's a payoff later on that you, re- you realise. So that um, I, it was a very valuable lesson for me in, in, in not doing the obvious thing. Right. I think it's a, I think it's a great um, uh, rule of thumb, really, in art in general. You know. Yeah, absolutely. You know, it's like a good principle for all of the arts, really. You know? Yeah, and I think that the you know in the movie industry, there's a sort of incredible paranoia amongst the sort of financial side. Yeah. Obviously, the people you know they talk about you know on TV, don't flip, don't flip, you know, don't change, you know, of keeping people. Telling them the obvious, keeping them there, um, right? As opposed to making a work of art, you know, yeah, yeah. That, that has some complexity and depth, and they're you kind know. of two different things. <laughs> sort they of. are two different things. <laughs> and it's different. like if you're working, if you're working in the industry, that's kind of your challenge, is because you know every once in a while a great film will hit that where it's like it is yeah. it is both of those things, and so that's like the challenge of exactly. anybody that really believes in what they're doing that works in the industry is to try and always, you know, do that, try and hit that. Well, exactly. And which is, you know, you know, apocalypse now, though, I'm, I'm sure they're going to, the, the money where we go, well, that was a big flop. Right. Right. <laughs> but, I mean, uh, but honestly, yeah, you wouldn't get those sort of iconic films, which are just so crazy and out there, but, but last. Right. Really. Exactly. That's the thing. It's like the really good stuff is, isn't proven until it's like, it takes time. To prove yeah. the really good uh, yeah. ones, because and it's like so much that, so much that comes out. Especially, I hate to s- sound like an old guy, but so much that comes nowadays, it's like people are just not gonna ever remember they ever existed. You know, yeah. it's and it's it's kind of a bummer, but um, you know so, that's the way it works. So he, so when I asked Jarovsky, you know what, so you know stylistically, what do you think I should do? He just looked, He just said, look, whatever you do, just make sure it comes from your heart. That's amazing. Which is amazing. It's an incredible act of trust. Yeah. You know, and and, um, I have found uh, that over the years, the kind of directors who don't interfere or don't have an idea about what they want or are prepared to let you have the idea and have a give it a new perspective, they get the best out of me. Exactly. It's as simple as that. Yeah. My best film scores have been like Santa Sangre for Richard Stanley's films. You know, Richard just lets me get on and do what I want to do. Yeah. Gosh, you know, Michele Suave, those people who don't try and interfere too much, you know, they'll get something. I don't know. I don't know, but I mean, (laughs) no, 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 I, I I totally agree. I mean, you know, I've seen directors do this. It's like, Hire the people that you really love, that you know do a kick-ass job and care about what they're doing, and then let them do their job, and then you'll get the best result. Exactly. You know, it's... And that, you know, I mean, that works with actors, for Christ's sake. Yeah. You know, no one's <laughs> going to turn around and really and say to Bruce Willis, I "Don't just you know, so yeah. just be Bruce Willis, be Schwarzenegger." That's all <laughs> right. people want. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Wow. So, um, so was uh, he, uh, uh, how was he to work with? It sounds like he was cool. <laughs> he was really cool. You know, I mean, I, as usual, I took VHS tape back to London and just wrote the music. You know, I, I, 
I gave it a lot of uh, thought, though, that particular film, because, it, I, and I've said this many times, I think it's closest to being a work of art on its own, and not just a great movie. You right. know, I mean, every frame of the film is right. so beautifully shot and right. composed as it well. Yeah, it it's, a, it's, a, it's a wonderful uh, thing to watch. So I gave a lot of thought, you know, and I, and I was able to use really all of the talents I had accumulated. So, you know, for the little boys theme, you know, it's just an acoustic guitar theme, mm. which is where I started. Right. And which felt right for this sort of very lost, traumatized child right. that the even the grown up version of is a traumatized child till he's really fucked up. Right. Um, and I was able to do some electronic music for it. I mean, I. In my own head, I thought it sounded like an orchestra. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> I, I've discovered this looking back at a lot of my work. That I'm so, you know, also because I'm so connected to the technology and the, how good these synths were or the samplers were. You know, I couldn't afford a real orchestra. I didn't have the budgets for that. So in my head, I'm thinking, oh, that's a really good string sound. That's great. In my own head, I was trying to kid people that this was a real orchestra. When I listen to it now, it sounds nothing like that. It sounds like, (laughs) it's insane. I mean, it has that sort of, sort of halfway between synth and orchestral thing that like Clockwork Orange does in a way. I was coming from that perspective. Right, but it still is good though, and it still works. I like it, yes. I like what it is, which is it's kind of in a a strange world of its own. Right, which is kind of perfect, really. It works kind of for the yeah. film, <laughs> so I'm very pleased with it. To which end, I, I don't, I don't, I mean, I'm not on here to plug it particularly, but I've just re-released. Yeah, I the wanted to talk soundtrack. about that. Yeah, yeah, you, you, you've, you've re-released the whole soundtrack on on vinyl, right? Yeah, double vinyl, yeah. double clear vinyl, right? It's a double clear vinyl. <laughs> That's <Yes>. so cool. <laughs> With it's like liner scene, notes, scene and it's like a, it's a reference to the Invisible Man scene. In uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> so, you yeah, I was curious about this. I mean, is this something that you? Uh, uh, re- how did you release this? I mean, is this something in 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 concert with the with the the production company? Because don't they kind of own all the music, or is this like a? Uh, it's <laughs> not. <laughs> really, I formed my own label, which is called Flick Records. Uh-huh. Okay, um, to kind of just to 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 release, you know, some of the, the stuff that I am proud of, uh, and I, I and ones which I can put in stuff that other people haven't released from those films, right. and you know, just um, uh, let me say the legal aspects of it are. Okay, <laughs> you know, I mean, I've come to an arrangement. Okay, cool. So we say, so you know, it's okay. Yeah, uh, awesome. So, so I've been able to release this thing, and I have found things, you know, that are in the film but have never been put on any soundtracks before. So oh, there's excellent. a lot of new cues in it that people won't have. And I also found, you know, because during the make of the film, the DAT tapes um, that they recorded on the set of the bands, like you know, the circus band. Uh-huh, yeah. And street bands, uh, you know, and all that sort of stuff. So I've, I, which also most of it not been put out before. So uh, I've got all that on it. So there's a lot of new material. That's amazing. 
That's amazing. It must have been. So a... There will never be a more definitive version, you know, if right. for collectors if they want, you know, of, of, of that music. So That's so cool. It must have been a really fun project to put together, too. It, it was, yeah. No, I mean, like, yeah, it really was. You know, and I found takes, you know, takes like of the acoustic guitar theme that I didn't use. So, right. you know, so there's a couple of take, different takes of it. That's on, excellent. That's excellent. You know, it's 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 fun, and I think you know it's a it's I think it's a nice sort of package in that there's loads of photos and stills from the yeah, film. Yeah. You know, that's really cool, and that's uh, available on your. Uh... That's available on on my from my own website simonboswell.com. But yeah, so it's my own label. That's so um, cool. So I have a distributor in America who. So we have shipped a lot of stuff out there so that it can be dispatched cheaply and oh, quickly excellent. in the states so excellent it's already, it's already on, on in the on your on your continent right <laughs> that's cool <laughs> yeah it's like the, the, the music industry has changed so much in a bad way but at the same yeah. time it's like i love that i love that people are doing you know vinyl releases really obscure more targeted types of of albums now and and they're really yeah. special you know, you know, because you remember buying a vinyl album was amazing, yeah. and, and, you know, yeah. uh, and the the big covers, and you'd open it up, and all the liner notes, and all the extra pictures. It's like that I stuff know. made music so 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 special, and it's 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 not like that anymore. So now well, these releases, not... like you're doing, are are kind of extra special now. You know what I mean? Well, yeah, yeah. I I think I think they are. I think that you know, I think people just loved having this thing in their hands. You know, and the artwork was big enough. Just, just appreciate, right. you know, on a twelve-inch thing. Yeah. You no. Know, plus, everyone used to roll joints on them, of course. Well, that but, there's I mean... that, and then you would, <laughs> <laughs> but you would sit down and listen to. I mean, I remember when I would listen to a record, I'd either be, I'd put it on while I was creating some artwork or sculpting or doing making my monsters, or I would actually, I'd go and buy a new record, and I would sit down and listen to it all the way through and read the lyrics and read the liner notes in between the. It was like it was an right. experience, you know. It was really. I kind of uh, yeah. I'm bummed out for the younger, the younger kids these days. Yeah, I know, I know. I have, I'm in my my. I have my youngest son is now 16. He's going to be 17 soon. Mm. You know, he, but he does appreciate the old the older stuff. You know, it's just that he hasn't grown up like you know right. I did with 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 that. You know, with the old media, as they say. Yeah, yeah. He's it's... a He's a fantastic musician, my son. I don't know. Oh, what's he play? I, well, he plays guitar principally, but in in a far superior way to me. That's cool. I mean, <laughs> unbelievable the way I know all these kids now get on get on YouTube and learn as tapping and all right, you know, sweet picking and all that. I mean, he can do all that, but I mean, I I'm just constantly amazed actually. Right. But he would like to be a musician, and I, I'm not sure it's such a good idea. Well, my my son is uh, thirty. I think he's 30 now. I have one that age too. Yeah. <laughs> he, and, <laughs> and he's, he's a drummer and he's like, okay. he's a professional drummer. And, uh, you know, he's, he's, he's always playing on sessions. He's, you know, he's right. struggling of course, cause it's hard, but, um, yeah. he's in this, yeah. he's in a traditional ska band. There's this whole traditional ska sixties, Jamaican ska scene in LA okay. and, and in Mexico with these younger kids, like in their you know twenties and thirties, 
And it's, yeah. it's this weird scene. I had no idea existed until I uh, uh, heard him, you know, he's been doing it for a while now, but it's so weird how these, these, there are so many scenes. I know. I know. I mean, it's like, I don't, in the sixties, you know, all I remember was there was, there was either the, the shit that was on top of the pops, right. you know, which was songs written by other people that, Right. Just singers sang. Right. <laughs> and there was, ba- you know, bands writing their own stuff. And it was just, it was just music. It was, just, I don't know what you'd call it even. It was just, you know, it right. wasn't devolved into lots of different uh, styles, really. Right, right. But I, I just, I, I think it's cool that I see a lot of pe- younger people appreciating, you know, good music from the old yeah. days, really. Because it oh, really yeah. is, you know, I don't. I don't know how, you know, I, I, it sounds cliche, but really the, the pop music nowadays is like, I know. you can't compare it. You just can't any, I, I you know, it, it's, it's just, it's really shitty. It is. <laughs> it's well, so it's, bad. It is, it's, well, you know, the whole culture has sort of gone in that true. direction, true. hasn't it? It's true. It's everything, I guess. It's weird. Life is crazy. Yeah. 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 But, um. Yeah. Well, I mean, I what what are you doing now? I could I could keep going on with you for hours, but I know you have to stop soon. What what's what's um what's going on with you lately? What do you what are you up still, to? Well, uh, surprisingly, during the whole lockdown year, I've been really busy. Mm-hmm, you know, yeah. which is uh, you know largely because uh, the, the, I signed on to do three Mexican horror films. Oh, cool! Uh, like about eighteen months, two years ago, but they, they kind of got very late for various reasons. But right. then that's—I've been doing that really pretty much since March last year. Uh, just literally finished the third one a couple of days ago. Uh, awesome. Amidst it all, I also scored a comedy, which is you know uh, very different for me. Yeah, <laughs> that must have been interesting. <laughs> I mean, I have done some comedies before, but this is this is like a period comedy. It's based on a Noel Coward play called Blythe Spirit. Oh, wow. There has been movie versions of that too, with Judy Dench and all kinds of, you know, cast of... So it's, it's like in a 1930s, 40s mm-hmm. uh, comedy. Very, very silly. But um, that was kind of really interesting for me to do that because it's a very different sort of thing that you have to do with music. Because oh, yeah. as I remember, right, the worst kind of music for comedies is like it's too, so on the nose. It's like um, <laughs> I just watched you know, a movie like fall over. You got a trump. I just yeah. watched a movie. I sw- I just watched a movie last night called. Do you remember this movie from the? It was from the eighties called Neighbors, with John Belushi and Dan Aykroyd. I'm not sure I do remember that. It, it wasn't a huge it, shit. It, it's kind of it's 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 funny. I was kind of watching it okay. just for nostalgia's sake because I I remember when it came out, and yeah. it was uh, Bill Conti was did the music who's like famous. Yeah. He did Rocky, which is amazing. It's like uh, yeah. amazing. Music. He did Dallas theme as well. Did he? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I didn't, wasn't aware of that, but but the music. Yeah. I thought the music in, in it was so awful. It was like the only thing that kept yeah. it from being a really good movie is it was it had like this like kind of wacky trombone it was like yeah you just like lowered lowered the level you'd lowered the level of 
how this movie could have been a good movie by by being too on the nose. Exactly, it's very difficult. You know, I think writing music for a comedy is the hardest thing to do. Uh, wh- where I've got to with it is is that uh, it's better to almost play the music straight, or almost make it as if the composer has no sense of humor whatsoever. Right. You know, <laughs> and let the actors play against it. Right. Right. What I mean. Whatever kind of role, whatever it's, however it's set or whatever. Right. Just try and make the music, because if you try and make it, fu- no, no, that's <laughs> not. No, you want the script to be funny, right? And the act to be funny, or the right. slapstick, whatever. You don't want the music telling you all that shit. Yeah, right. Same right. thing I was just saying that Jodorowsky said. You don't yeah. want to. You don't. You don't need to. You hit. You. You already think it's funny or not. Right. <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> so you know, it's very, very difficult. So it's tricky for me. So you know, but there are places where I lived, I had to do some of that. Uh, but right. um, it's a difficult decision to make with it. <laughs> yeah. Well, this movie was like throughout the whole movie, it was like that. I was like, why did they do that? <laughs> I can't believe yeah. it. But uh... can I can I can I talk just a little bit before we go? Yeah. I mean, yeah. About, um, because this is important for me because mm-hmm. I've had to stop doing it for a year, but I've been doing a lot of what I'm doing live. Oh, yes, I saw that. I saw that. So, um, you know, I'm really keen to try and get back back to it. But I have a band, you know, which um, it's not like, you know, the usual film, you know, not like going to hear Lord of the Rings live or something, you right. know. This is me taking all the sort of things that I like from all of the different sort of films that I've done um, with a band who are fa- is fairly psychedelic. At right. Times. I we, saw a video. Got, I saw a little clip. It was awesome. Yeah. It was really cool. So we you know, you'll recognize some of the music which we played straight, but others we really go other places with it. Oh, that's excellent. Um, and each of the tracks I pick, I pretty much re-edit the movie to fit my music. Oh, so it's like cool. <laughs> it's like revenge of the film composer. <laughs> it's a great shows. idea. So you see, you see, uh, you know, a four or five minute version of the film with all the best bits. You know, I'm cherry picking all the best bits. You know, I'm probably going to get sued to death at some point. It's but so cool! It's such know. a cool idea. So it's like I, in my head, I describe it as being a cross between um, sort of Pink Floyd meets the Velvet Underground. Conducted by Bernard Herman on acid. Uh, that sounds amazing. <laughs> sounds like uh, my kind of thing. So, you know, so we do, you know, we do a lot of the Italian stuff, and then we do some of the latest, the hardware, Dust Devil, and Shallow Grave, and you know, or Lord of Illusions. We, you know, we do a whole bunch of these. Santa Sangre for the first time, end of 2019, we played. In Mexico City on Day of the Dead. Oh my and God. That must have been amazing. 25, 30 minutes of Santa Sangre live. Wow. So I'm thinking of sort of touring, trying to tour that again. So, you know, that would I'm, be amazing. Any festivals or people out there in the States, I want to come later in the summer when hopefully things are a bit, you know, quieting down. Yeah. Virus yeah. Wise. Well, you know, but, I, I have a feeling that once everything's calmed down, uh, live events are going to be huge. So it's like, you know, it's probably a good time to capitalize on something like that. Yeah, People exactly, are dying exactly. to get out, you know? Yeah. And it's such a cool idea. Is it just under um, uh, Simon Boswell or is there a name for the project? Well, or? I, I it, it's, let's say it's a bit of a both. 
I, I gave the band a name, which I've subsequently recognised is the most ungoogleable name in the universe. <laughs> the, the band is called The And. Yeah, I saw that. <laughs> right. Now, those two words, uh, and, that's not going to get you very far. So it's rather stupid of me. Uh, but anyway, it's the band's called The And, and uh, but it pretty much is just say Simon Boswell, The And. Okay, uh, okay. Yeah, so that's but that's that's how we do it. That's awesome. And man. it's you know, it's fun it's fun. It's well actually do I say it myself, it's a really fun thing to watch because you, you know, some these films they you know, I've I've got million hundreds of millions of pounds, dollars worth of footage. Right. <laughs> that I am probably illegally using. Ah, fuck 'em. <laughs> <laughs> they owe you. They owe you for making their films great. Um yeah. Are you? How many people are in the band? Just real quick, like, are there you are, a lot of like, sampler? Are you sampling? Yeah, I there's imagine... a lot of sampled stuff, but just because in places, you right. know, where I'm trying to recreate. Yeah, there's there's four or five of us. It depends how many, you know, we can take. Uh, right. And everyone's sort of multi instrumentalist. So the sax player also plays viola and drums, and the trumpet player plays keyboards wow. and. Uh, Lola, who sings, also plays keyboards and percussion. I play guitar and piano, and key, you know. So we're always sort of moving around, doing, doing very shit. Yes. But that, you know, but things are coming off the laptop as well, just yeah. because it just has to happen that way. Right. To, yeah. To, do as much uh, as you can with live instruments, and then yeah, fill so, in. Totally. With, and yeah. a lot of Santa Sango we can do completely live because it's quite simple stuff. Um, yeah. So you know. Yeah. Well, that's, that's that's where I'm at. Yeah, it sounds amazing. Uh, one last thing before you go. Yeah. One last thing. Okay. What are you doing all your composing on now? You're not, what software are you using? I'm still, I think I mentioned it earlier, it's, I'm still using Digital Performer. Oh, yeah. Which is, that, which is like Logic. It's like, you know, all those other Pro Tools and all that. It's the same thing, but it's more popular in America than it has been in the UK where I am. So it's A been around all this was, time? That software has been has existed. It's, it was since since 1986. It was just called Performer right. before it could do digital chip, and it's still around. Wow! Yeah, that's amazing. It's still around. The company is called Mark Mark of the Unicorn, shortened to Mo. Okay, I remember you saying this. Okay, so so they make interfaces and and all that stuff as well. But there, it's a I. For me, it's been the one, you know, that I really like. I tried Logic and I didn't get along with it. Oh, really? But, um, they all do the same thing, basically. Yeah, ultimately. I got I got Logic. That's what I use now for because I still do music just for fun. But um, okay. that's the what only... What do you play, by the way? What's your... What's uh, your uh... Gu- guitar. Guitar. Okay, yeah, cool. Yeah, guitar. Okay. And uh, I. the only reason I picked up the guitar is just because I wanted to write music, too. It's not like... I'm, I'm not a great lead player but i'm a, I'm a good rhythm right. player but it was more like i taught myself guitar just so i could write songs you know and well now, you should i yeah. just sent my son a really nice there was a nice picture of chuck berry with a quote from keith richards where he's talking about the chuck berry really he does what guitarists shouldn't be either rhythm guitarists or lead guitarists they should be like Chuck Berry, where he's a rhythm guitarist, but his lead work is basically two strings. Right. He devolves out of the rhythm stuff. He doesn't, you know what I mean? Right, right, and, right. And that's, he said, guitar, you know, guitarists have got really lazy, expecting the rhythm sections of the rhythm and right, being just right. playing lead. Yeah, yeah, He's quite yeah. right about that. And he does that too. He's a rhythm 
guitarist right. to play sort of riffs in with it. Right, right, right. Yeah. yeah but anyway, yeah. that's. I was just going to ask you, run you by this. Are you? Do you know about metal? I don't know about much about metal music. Uh, I I mean I know uh, a fair amount. I mean I've worked with that band Tool a lot. Um, oh, okay. That's the, and they're they're as as far as metal goes, they're they're amazing. They're kind of like, uh, I think as good as it gets in that genre, you know. Um, but there's a lot of metal I don't know. I was more of like I said a. I was always kind of like a rock punk guy more than anything, but um, I like all kinds of music. But I just because I got this message, just well, I didn't see it. It's actually from last December, but I only just saw it on Messenger from the from this guy who's in a band called Sepultura. Oh, really? Yeah. There... <laughs> and I don't, I don't know. I didn't know much about them. I, I, my son said, "Oh my god, they're amazing!" This guy yeah, called Igor they're... Cavalera. Yeah, yeah. They're, he's he just like... sent me a thing saying respect. No way. <laughs> <laughs> no, he's like he's a big time. They're they're a great band. They're a really great band. Yeah. 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 I didn't know them, but they're Brazilian, aren't they? Originally yeah, yeah. Brazilian. That's so cool. <laughs> yeah. So I get I get, get like weird crossovers into into the weird rock industry. I didn't touch on this at all, actually, but. From doing film music, I've worked with all kinds of people and produced people. Right. So I, I work with Elton John on a, on a. Yeah, that's right. That's what I'm saying. It's, it's like I can keep going. And as a result of which, through that, I then got to produce Dolly Parton. Yeah. Yeah, and yeah. Marianne, Fett, you know, it's amazing. It's just really weird the way my life kind of goes, you know. Yeah, you're like uh, uh, one of these kind of people that just knows and has worked with kind of everybody just about yeah i, I, I guess yeah yeah well everyone except steven spielberg and, right. uh... <laughs> well after well after steven spielberg listens to this podcast <laughs> he's gonna hire you i know it <laughs> yeah you think <laughs> well man yeah like i said i could keep i i i i know your career is like a lot more expansive than well, this well we but... can do do another one. I would time. love to have you on again if you to, to cover yeah, this well, stuff. You know, yeah, 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 it's I, good I fun, it. man. Yeah, super fun talking to you. Um, yeah, thanks for for coming on and um, for I'll, I'll put a description where to go to get to 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 your go to your website and your social That'd media cool. and all that. But okay. um, but just for good. people listening now, it's simonboswell.com is really the the place to go, right? That's where you can buy the the albums. Yeah, there's hardware. There's a lot of stuff there. Yeah, actually. yeah. Tons of Go into that sort of stuff. Depends yeah, yeah. You're if you're a John Williams fan, well, forget it. <laughs> <laughs> well, excellent, man. Well, thanks so much for taking the time out and coming on. And, and it was, I had a great time. I really appreciate it. Me too. A, re- a real pleasure. I hope to hope to catch up with you again. Yeah, let's stay in touch. Don't don't hang up now uh, when I okay. stop the recording. But uh, okay. one thing I do at the end of the podcast is say goodbye to the audience. So say goodbye to the audience. Goodbye, audience. Bye. You too. <laughs>